Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. Happy 2021. Welcome back to another episode. How you doing today, Brie? I'm so good, Jamie. It's so great to hear your voice and it's so great to be back and in a new studio. Ooh, yes. We're in new locations. We're constantly moving, constantly changing over here. How was the start to your uh, 2021? It was rocky AF. I'm not going to lie. It's been... Same. Oh my gosh. And then I feel like we've been trying to record for like two months now. No longer. Yeah, I think longer than that. And then every single time we go to do it, every it's it's like back time. and forth. So I have something wrong. You have something wrong. I have something wrong. It's just nonstop back and forth. It's been like playing a uh, ping pong. I absolutely agree. But hey, thanks to everyone that still supports us. Absolutely. We love you guys. Through our inconsistencies, we never plan on ending this podcast. So we will always be back. Yeah, don't worry about that. We might disappear for a little bit, but we promise we'll be back. Brie is my soul sister, and no matter how far away we get from each other, we're just going to keep coming back. That's absolutely true. I'm still hoping that 2021 will be a great year for us and that we'll run into less obstacles and be able to do this more often. I think that goes for everything with everyone right now. I think that when 2020 ended, we thought like, okay, 2020 is done. We're over it. And then we woke up in 2021 like, "Mm, maybe it's not done. There's still the last rattle. Exactly. All right, Brie, well, let's jump into this episode. What are we talking about tonight? Today, we're going to talk about Venus. Venus aliens. Did you know that Venus is apparently my planet? No. You didn't know? It's the ruling planet of Libras. It is? Yes. That's very cool. Wow, I can't believe you didn't know that. It's the planet of love. Also, apparently, I am the only astrological sign that is represented by an inanimate object. Interesting. Random facts of the day, the more you know. I love your random facts. I'm sure you miss hearing them constantly. I do. Love to all the Libras out there. But um, we were inspired by this because in October, I'm sure many of you know, there was this announcement that there could have been life detected on Venus. Really, that was just through a telescope. They discovered the chemical phosphines and that was in the atmosphere of Venus and that has the potential for life. And it struck me that out of all the planets that we had this announcement, it was Venus because we have so many stories of abductions and contactees that all name these ETs from Venus. And for so long, Jamie and I always joked about that. You know, Jamie, one of the things you would always say is, uh, if it's from Venus, it's a red flag. You know, you would you would always not really take it seriously if it was from Venus. It's a red flag immediately. Yeah. But then I'm thinking maybe jokes joke was on us. It's quite possible. Well, I think over time we've realized that we have these little breadcrumbs of types of disclosure and it could just be this little announcement of a possibility that it's just getting people acclimated to the idea of aliens on Venus. Well, you know, I think people have a lot of misconceptions. They think of Venus and, you know, it's the second planet from the sun. So immediately you're like, oh my God, it's probably so hot. What's going on there? 
But Venus actually used to have a, a topography very similar to Earth. Uh, whether we realize it or not, a lot of the planets did. You know, the, the ones that have iron cores, at least, definitely had some sort of a crust on side of it and, you know, might have had mountains and, and water and all those kind of things. But scientists say that, you know, because it's so close to the sun, all the water eventually probably dried up and things like that. Like, you know, there's some type of event that happened that changed Venus into what it is today. But I've always said, you know, these planets are like millions and millions of years old. For us to look at a planet and be like, oh, no one could ever live there. You have no idea what a planet started off looking like compared to what it looks like now. You know what I mean? Like, just think about our own planet. We have arguments about whether or not the continents were all together. That's very true. Things drastically change. So this could just be a remnant of life that maybe was potentially there already. I mean, these phosphines here on Earth, they are caused by microbial life. So, you know, we've also had this argument of what do we consider life? Could it be just by these microorganisms? I mean, that's technically life. Or we could go all the way up to being a sentient being or, you know, someone like humans or other types of forms. I mean, it kind of rabbit holes from there. It's really interesting to think about Venus in a spectrum of possible life. I guess we never really considered it as much. Like I said, we kind of took it as a joke. Then I'm thinking there are some really big contactee stories that has to do with ETs from Venus. Stories that are worth maybe a second look and more of a serious contemplation. And I 100% agree with you. We've definitely talked about some Venus cases. I think the most famous one that we make fun of the most would probably be Valiant Thor. <laughs> yeah. You know, we all, we, all, we all crack jokes about that one. But the more and more you, I started to look into all these stories of people from Venus, you know, a lot of people say these Venusians that they're seeing kind of all look the same. They kind of all look like Cubans. They kind of all look like, you know, tall blonde people. And, uh, you know, yes. that we, we call that race something, not just the Venusians. What do we call them, Brie? The Nordics. Well, you know, and what's funny about that is today we're going to talk about somebody who actually started talking about the Nordics. The reason we talk about Nordics today, and you wouldn't even realize it. Whom are we speaking about? We're going to talk about one of my favorites that I've been trying to get you to talk about, George Adimsky. Oh, this will be an episode of The Tale of Two Georges. Ooh, which George do you got for me? George Van Tassel, one of our favorites. Oh, and you know what? These two have a tiny bit of overlapping. Yes, I agree. So tell me more about George Adamski. All right, let's get into George. So honestly, the more and more I dug into George, the more and more I was kind of like, why the fuck? Did you know that he started his own cult? Like the more and more I got into him, I'm like, why the fuck do more people not follow him? And like, I like the more I was researching him, it was like really hard to find information on him. Like no one has a YouTube video about him. Like it's only fucking in Spanish. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like this is actually like a very prominent figure. Like, and he's kind of glazed over in today's society. Maybe because of the cult factor. I mean, it could be. So George Adimsky was a German immigrant who came here to the United States with his family when he was young, and he ended up being a soldier. He doesn't really have a, a remarkable childhood by any means, nothing too special. And, you know, even in his, you know, early 20s and stuff, there was nothing that fantastic about him. He was just a regular, normal kind of guy. It really wasn't until he ended up getting married and he got a awesome job working at Yosemite National Park and he moved over to California area. And in the 1920s, once right after he moved to California, he became interested in the occult and kind of like interesting, 
European and Eastern religions and, and those kind of things. And so he started, you know, really digging in and looking into it. And by the 1930s, he kind of became like a major occult figure on the California scene. He was teaching this kind of philosophy that was known as like what he called to be like universal progressive Christianity or the universal law. We still hear a lot of that today, the universal law. Yes, we do. So while he was living in Southern California, he ended up founding a cult called the Royal Order of Tibet in Laguna Beach. And he was like actually mildly like successful at it. Like he had followers and people who would come to him every day and he was considered kind of like a, a philosopher, even though he had like no training and like never went to school for any of it. People found him to be very charming. And as we all know with cult leaders, you really just got to be charming and, you know, say some shit that makes sense to people. And in the 1930s, um, you have this time where prohibition is setting in. And so people, I think, are looking for things like religion and stuff to do. And one of the things that George really capitalized on at this time, which kind of starts this pattern of him being kind of a little bit of like a scammer and a... Uh, like a snake oil salesman. Exactly. Kind of like a snake oil salesman kind of guy. Exactly. Like very like scummy, like. Mm. <laughs> and this is kind of where he starts to get this reputation. But during Prohibition, because he had like a, a religious center, he got a special license to make uh, religious wine. And so when he was down in the Laguna Beach area, he was making tons of money selling wine to all these, you know, prohibition people who couldn't drink and stuff like that. And he did that for a long time and made a lot of money doing it until prohibition ended and then he completely went bankrupt. <laughs> well, that's an unfortunate turn of events. Right? So right after that, he ended up moving to a ranch in California, right on Polymer Mountain. And um, he actually convinced one of his kind of cult followers to buy him this location. And they turned it into like a big giant campground and kind of commune. And he opened up this little hamburger stand on top of it. And what was kind of significant about the area was it was right below the Polymer Observatory that was right above it. A lot of people would come and George started to kind of use the observatory as like a way to communicate with people. Like he'd be serving up his little hamburgers, people would be eating their snacks and camping, and he would kind of walk around to the front of the hamburger stand and start to tell stories about the stars. Over time, a lot of people just assumed that he worked at the observatory because this was a, you know, campground that they operated that they could make money on and stuff in addition to just the cult followers living there and working and stuff. People actually started to call him like professor and things and he would never, ever correct them. He would always just kind of like, mm, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> He, he was definitely a guy, obviously, who like really liked his ego being fed and you can, you can tell. So I think as time went on, more and more people would start to come and, and hang out there and that's when his stories would start to get more and more elaborate. They started to take a weird turn. So on October 9th in 1946, 1946. Sex. Yeah, sex in 1940s. On October 9th, 1946, during a meteor shower, George and his friends claimed that they were at the campground and they witnessed a large cigar-shaped UFO. Not only did he see it, but he got a photograph of it, which is kind of like one of the very early photos. Now, have you seen the photo, Brie? I don't think I have. It's not... To me personally, it's not very convincing. It's not very convincing. And this begins a very long, long saga of George Antimsky and his very strange UFO photos. There's lots of them, and he sold them for a lot of money. He still sells them to this day. Like they're the foundation, I think, that is like in his name. Like they're all copyrighted and stuff, and you can't take them. And he never gave them away for free. He only ever sold them. That's kind of strange. Yes. I mean, normally when people want to 
other people to take UFOs and stuff seriously, they would just go out and show the world opposed to being like, do you want to see it? Uh, you got a hundred bucks. So again, this goes with this, this pattern of him being the snake oil salesman. Mm-hmm. You're kind of like, what the hell? So in 1949, George started running the UFO circuit stream. And every single time he spoke, he absolutely asked for his fee for the lecture. Just, you know, make sure that's in there. And it was interesting that somebody like this, who only, you know, three years earlier saw his first quote unquote UFO and took a picture of it. Kind of interesting that his, uh, his rise to already showing up. But he was making these wild claims that like the government and science had established the existence of UFOs earlier and we were all ignoring it and that they were using radar to track 700 long spaceships over the moon and stuff. And he was claiming that every single planet in our solar system had life on it and the government knew. These are like very early like conspiracy theories. Like he, whether we want to believe it or not... He is kind of one of the fathers of this ufology stuff. He started all of this kind of like talking about these things. And obviously, we don't know whether or not he was, you know, a little little con man or if he was real serious about it or if there was truth within his story and he just fabricated it. But it's interesting to see a lot of the things that he talked about. He was the first person to talk about those kind of things. So his real big UFO sighting happened in 1952 when he was in the desert with a bunch of friends and he had a UFO come down, a alien came out named Orthon and talked to him telepathically. Now, some of the things that this alien said to him telepathically are very, very in line with what we normally hear. You know, you guys are ruining the planet, war is bad, you're all a bunch of big crybabies kind of shit. You know, the the normal the normal aliens come down and they're like, you, you guys are your own worst enemies kind of bullshit. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. Get your shit together. Exactly. And again, this is back in the time when like he realistically was the very first person to have quote unquote contact with like an alien face to face. Many of people have claimed to see UFOs or many of people, you know, said that maybe they were abducted or whatever. But this is the first time somebody is coming out and saying, hey, a UFO came here and a full blown alien came out and had a conversation with me in my head. And not just that, but he definitely very much so put some extra sauce on this story. And I think his extra sauce is what makes people kind of raise an eyebrow at it. Apparently, this whole entire encounter happened with all his friends watching from like a few hundred yards away through like binoculars and stuff. And all of these people swore on affidavits that they witnessed something come out of something and talk to him. Interesting. Not only that, but the location where the UFO apparently landed or where the where Orthon was standing, they said that there was like marks in the ground. Like you could see where the UFO landed. It had like little impressions and the bottom of his boots had like, you know, little Nike swooshes or something on it and made little <laughs> imprints in the ground kind of shit. And so it was like that. And he said it was a very typical, he was wearing like the, the space suit, the, you know, with the shimmery and it looks really light and the, and the boots. And the like skin tight jumper. Exactly. And what's interesting about it, again, as him being the very first person to make this kind of claim, a lot of other stories of people who come out say these exact same things. It's kind of, to me, what's the most interesting about this case is like, is it the chicken or the egg thing? Are people's stories like this because he was the first one to come out? So this is what's like in our mainstream media. Or is it like maybe he didn't realize how accurate he was being? That's true. Maybe it was like a fake it till you make it situation. Like maybe there's a little bit of bullshit and then he's like, oh shit, they're really coming. You know, exactly. maybe they 
they felt the vibes and they're like, all right. I mean, for his followers to swear by it, that could go both ways. There could be people that if it wasn't true, would be like, this guy's full of shit, I'm out. Or people that are so dedicated to him that they will lie and just play their part. So he continues to look like, you know, this exalted being with contactees. Well, you know, what happened is years later is a lot of the people who signed the affidavit came out and basically was like, I don't know. They didn't really say yes or no. They were just kind of like, ah, something happened. But they couldn't necessarily say like, oh, yeah, his story is 100% what happened. The, the affidavit he made them sign was like his obviously own, own accounting of it. You know what I mean? And so they were kind of like, mm, I don't know. Wow. But one thing I will say is he did take a plaster cast of the shoe print that Orthon left. And he said that it contained mysterious symbols, which was like a message from the Venusians. Wow. And what's funny is, is this kind of description of what this Venusian looked like is the description of what we call Nordics these days, which eventually over time, he started calling the Nordic people as well, I believe, as he went on doing lectures and things like that. He also wrote several books about his experiences. And over the years, a bunch of Venusian slash Nordics came down and visited him. And he got all these different pictures of all these UFOs. What's cool about these UFO pictures are they are very fucking clear. We're not talking like some weird dot far away in the sky. We're talking like up close. You could see the lights. You could see the windows kind of bullshit. But the more and more you look at them, the more and more you're like, wait, what the fuck is that? So from a far distance, it definitely looks like a UFO. But then like as you get closer, you're like, is that a lampshade? Ah. You're like, wait a second. Like, wait a second. So I was going to say, it's not like they had Photoshop back then. So if you saw something, you probably just believed it. No. Well, they definitely look, they look a little lampy. I'm going <laughs> to, we'll, we'll post some of the pictures and stuff on Instagram so you guys can see. But they were intriguing enough for Project Blue Book to go and investigate the photos. Oh, so... Okay. See, so we have even more of a crossover. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, George Jemski is as prominent of a figure as he is in this UFO world and how he spans through many of things. Like, it's very interesting that uh, there's not too much information about him out in the world. Like, not more people talking about him. It warranted enough for Project Blue Book to look in to his photos. Although I will say that Ruplet, our favorite Blue Book captain over there, was like, these are just a bunch of hoax. This is just, uh, these don't look real to me. These don't look, these don't look okay. But you know what? There was tons of people out there who were super interested in his photos and he made so much money selling these photos. How interesting. And it made people flock to his little campground. You know, and it made him more desirable on these UFO circuits. And where we have a little bit of a crossover is he's in the Southern California area and he is going to conferences and giving lectures at things like Giant Rock. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure that they overlap like time-wise. I'm pretty sure they were at the same conventions together, whether or not we realize it. Obviously, I don't think they were that close of friends or we probably would have heard a little bit more about it. But we're talking exact same locations at the exact same time at the exact same UFO conferences. Well, then they must have been because those were George Van Tassel's conferences. There wasn't mm -hmm. any other one. So maybe they were buddies. Who knows? Maybe they kind of shared information. Absolutely. So another thing that George claimed is he claimed that he uh, actually went aboard one of these spaceships. He actually wrote about it in one of his books. Um, and they said he they flew him to this big giant mothership that was hovering over the Earth and that they went on a quaint little stroll around the moon and they told him all about life on Venus. How cool. Tour de Luna. 
So he definitely, I think, got to drive the spaceship for 10 minutes. Oh, it was his birthright. So I'm glad he took advantage. Exactly. So he had definitely all of these wild claims. But, you know, one good thing that came out of this is because he was definitely the first person to kind of step forward and start talking about this, it made everyone else come out in droves and start talking about these kind of things to the point where he actually got the attention of the Queen of the Netherlands, Juanita, and went and had a meeting with her and was rumored to have had a secret meeting with the Pope. Oh, shoot. I know. Well, they're like Nordics. Well, here we are. Here we are. Really, he starts doing the the scene and, you know, writing all these books and and getting all this money, meeting all these people. And, you know, his, his stories continue to still get more and more elaborate over time. But really what starts to be his downfall is his trying to prove that it's all being real. And really what kind of headed all of it up was this letter that George received, quote unquote, from the FBI or the, I think it, I think it was called the Cultural Exchange Committee of the U.S. State Department. And basically the letter was saying that the U.S. government knew that he had had that weird meeting in the desert with extraterrestrials and that the this group of government people wanted to come out and kind of like publicly like say like, yes, his story is real. And George was like very like proud of this, that he was like, look, even the FBI is coming out and saying that, you know, what what I'm doing is real and the experiences I had are real. But then like shortly after, a ufologist by the name of James Osley revealed that the letter was just a giant hoax and that his friend Gary Baker took the letterheads from the state and wrote a fake letter to George as a prank. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of fucked up. But do you think that's true? That what? Do you think he really did that? Or do you think that person was just trying to discredit his story? No, the FBI came out and investigated it and said that that, that's exactly what they did, that they stole a letterhead and just wrote him a fake letter. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Well, so you have to you have to remember back in these days, you know, the UFO circuit is new to the scene, right? And there's a possibility that Mosley and Baker maybe could have been jealous because they were also, you know, fellow ufologists, maybe jealous of the attention that George was getting. Mm. Or maybe they thought that he was a shit person and <laughs> wanted him out of the community. You know what I mean? So they purposely sent out this fake letter knowing that eventually it would come back, that it was fake. So hoping to defame him a little bit. Like maybe they think that he's an embarrassment to ufology with all of his weird claims and stuff like that. I don't know their personal relationship. Yes, to the situation, but obviously they didn't want George around. I think that's shitty. Which, as the years go on, more and more ufologists come out and they just say that he's just a giant crock of shit and they don't want anything to do with him. I hate that, though, because then that, I feel like, could have been the beginning of this just not taking people's stories seriously. And, I mean, I understand you have to expose people that are full of shit. But then I just think it makes it a lot easier for all of these people to just look like they're a crock of shit and not take ufology serious in general. Yeah, for sure. So that's that's a double-edged sword for me. I, I agree with you on that one. And, you know, that really started his downfall within, like, the media and within the the field of ufology, where he just started to get more and more questioned about his stories and things started to come out. More and more people were looking at his UFO photos and, and you know, discrediting them and saying how fake they were. And more and more people were coming out about his stories and things like that. And it was, it was a pretty quick downfall for him. He, I think he ended up doing conferences until his death, which was in 1965, which is not that many years after the height of when this all kind of started, you know? 
I think once he did die, a lot of people forgot about him almost instantly. And then there's like these little crumbs of him coming back up into things. I think you had to said to me at one point that when the uh, government dropped all those UFO documents, that there's something in there talking about George. Yeah, he was one of the people, one of the first files that I saw. Although now I know it's not the big UFO drop that everyone was talking about for, you know, the documents that should be released from the stimulus package. But they have been consistently releasing files kind of just one at a time. And it just so happened that the first one I started looking at happened to be George Adamski. And I thought, huh, that's so weird. That's super weird. So we had a a really quick high and a really quick fall. And a a tarnished memory, you know, we we don't know whether we want to believe it or not. He is, like I said, one of the fathers of ufology and kind of started this whole thing about the he was the very first quote unquote contactee. And he was he's the reason we talk about the Nordics today, whether or not he realized that's what he did. That's he started all of that. And he all of this information is in his books. He wrote several books. I highly recommend people going and reading them. They're very good. I definitely think they are very good stories. I don't know if I necessarily believe all of them, but it's interesting to see the parallels of people coming out with their stories today in reference to George's stories and how similar they all are. And again, I go back to that chicken or the egg thing. The similarities are crazy to me. So at the end of the day, are we all just full of shit? Uh, or, yeah, no, you know what I mean? Sure. You know what I mean? It's an interesting parallel to go down because you start to think like you think if he never used the term Nordic and he only called it a Venusian, I would roll my eyes so hard at the story and not take two looks at it, right? But then the minute I saw Nordic, I was like, wait a second. And then as I start to dig back and I'm like, that's a big deal today. And he he's the reason we talk about them like that, you know? And so it's just, it's it's all interesting to see like where this is all coming from and to see a little bit of the history of where kind of where its foot really kind of put itself in the ground with its little Nike swoosh leaving little messages. <laughs> well, yeah, especially since... He's kind of forgotten about now, but yet the key words of his experiences and stories are continued to this day with other people and other stories. Exactly. When did you say he started doing this again? Uh, Contactee and stuff. Was that in the 1930s or the 40s when he started having these experiences? Uh, This was like the 1940s is when he started having like his first experiences, the early 40s. Well, then, yeah, he would definitely be the first because the other George that he crosses paths with didn't have his experiences until the early 50s. So he started this wave, I guess. And this could have just been a hot time, a hot period of time where maybe Venusians were visiting with people. And that's a huge possibility that I think people don't want to understand. Understand, like when you think about the the time of the Egyptians, right? So there was some certain type of species that came down and visited them. I, at least me and you believe that. And so who's not to say that now we have a different type of intergalactic species who have stumbled upon our planet and it just happened to be during this time. And that's why we have all of these super similar stories and things like that, because this was just, you know, it took them a few hundred light years to get here. They were going to spend some time. They were going to hang out. They were going to talk to as many people as they could before they, you know, jumped out of here. They're going to bring their cousins. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Well, George Van Tassel has always been someone of interest to us. And, you know, he's a very well-known contactee and ufologist for his time. I would say one of those things that makes him famous was his time that he spent living under Giant Rock itself. And we go to Giant Rock all the time. That's located near Landers, California. 
which we just consider Joshua Tree. Yeah, we just Joshua Tree. Yeah. And like anywhere on 29 Palms, that whole area, I just consider it just a blanket. I'm just going to say Joshua Tree. Yes, that's what we call it. And we've visited Giant Rock many times and we've talked many times about how magical it always feels. It just feels special and one of a kind. Just so much history that happened there and all that's left now is the giant boulder. So you're really just left with your imagination to look around and go, oh my gosh, what did this used to look like back then? Yeah, there's some like weird like kind of concrete slabs where buildings used to be and you can kind of mm-hmm. tell where the airport runway used to used to be at. And it's 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 an interesting kind of eerie place to be with so much history that's there. Very true. So yeah, like you said, the slabs, he... He lived under the rock for a short amount of time, but he built a cafe, a store. There was a gas station and the small airstrip that you're speaking of. And eventually he built the famous Integraton. George held group meditations there out in Joshua Tree, which is also one of the things that is continued to this day. And I know we've done like a mini meditation out there with Melinda Leslie, you know, trying to conjure the aliens and all that stuff. And we've talked about the Integratron before and the even more kind of tentacles that go out and reach into the other people within ufology that had to do with that. Yeah. And so it wasn't until he started doing these group meditations that after he then had a contactee experience and claimed that he was visited from aliens from Venus. And his story goes that it's 2 a.m., August 24th, 1953. It's a full moon, so fully lit out there in the middle of the desert. All the weirdos coming out. And he also claims his son-in-law, Daniel Boone, had witnessed this craft that had landed as well. So George says that he's awakened in the early morning by a pulsing sound and an ET, a man named Solgonda, stepped out and uh, he said that he didn't look an age over 25, but that Solgonda claimed to be over 700 years old, our time. I want to look that good when I'm old. Fuck that, I'm going to die young. (laughs) Silgonda said that he was a member of the Council of Seven Lights, and George claimed that he was taken upon this craft, well, that he was teleported into this craft. And he gives really specific details about the craft. He said it's 36 feet in diameter, 19 feet high, which sometimes we tend to question people's stories when they are that precise. Yes, we've always done that. Yeah, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> They're like, it's it was 7.3 inches off the ground. And you're like, did you have a ruler? <laughs> like, Yeah, he's like, it was 53 degrees Fahrenheit outside. So yeah, he, he gives those details, but he does say that Solgonda and three other male humanoid ETs showed him this celestial navigation system. And he described the ETs as white people with a good, healthy tan. So we we could still be talking about your your typical Nordics here, but maybe they, you know, like you said, Venus is so close to the sun. So they get instantly tanned, but they're still, you know, like that white, that white person tan. Maybe they got a little tan. Yeah. Because it's interesting because you would think if they were a darker skin tone that he would have described with being as specific as he is with like the the numbers and things, you think he'd be like they had a darker skin tone, but he was specifically like with a very a healthy, healthy tan. tan. <laughs> like they spent a lot of time at the equator. <laughs> Like they use baby oil for that, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so this, you know, the craft landed, invited him on, he went all da-da-da-da-da. 
Then they told him how to rejuvenate the human body, which ultimately led to the instructions of building the Integraton, which was capable of rejuvenation, anti-gravity, and time travel. Wait, hold on. Side note, side note. I really want to do another time travel episode because I've watched at least, and this is not a joke, I've probably watched at least 300 hours of time travel and I'm pretty convinced we can do it at this point. Oh, that's so great because that's different than the beginning of our podcast when you were like, there's no way we could time travel. No, I totally, It's it, it has everything to do with black holes. It's fine. I've watched so much. It's so bad. I followed this guy. His dad died when he was young and he, like, he's like, I have this life journey to do time travel and travel back in time and save save my dad. And then like he got really smart and like started to like figure out time travel and then he realized that he could never go back to save his dad because time travel can only work backwards at the point that you turned on the time machine. Wow. I know. That's fucking dark. It was all sad at the end. He was like, I can literally, I've, I've figured out how to do space travel and I, there's, I cannot do anything about it because I didn't figure it out soon enough. How interesting. Fucking nuts, right? Well, we'll have, we'll have, we have to do a whole episode on it because I'm like real serious into time travel right now. Yeah. So it's, well, then that's very interesting that we're going to talk about this and with the Integraton. And a lot of people still have a lot of questions about the Integraton. Like, what is this? It, there's a lot of hype about it and stuff. Seems to be coming back up in the news cycle again. Yeah, but also a lot of questions. And, you know, basically Van Tassel believed that biological cells are affected by EMF, which now a lot of people also believe. Mm-hmm. Again, another another father of this kind of stuff, the first person to throw this shit out here, these Georges. Yeah, and that each cell has a unique resonant electromagnetic frequency. And so... Sounds very Billy Carson-y. Oh, a little bit. Yeah, totally. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Our DNA is code. Oh <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, again, definitely maybe seeding our, our future here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how the Integraton works is by a strong wideband EMF that's generated inside the Integraton and then resonates with each individual biological cell frequency. And then it recharges the cellular structure like a battery. And doesn't the Integraton, like the way it's built, have something to do with that too? Like there wasn't any nails or anything used in it or stuff yes. like that. And the shapes that are used are specifically used to like hone in on like your, your, you know, your cells and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was apparently built on top of a power geomagnetic anomaly. So... Are we talking like, uh, like, uh, you know how they say that like uh, rocks can trap like ghosts activity in them? Oh, uh, like sandstone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, our limestone, things like that. Are we talking about something like that? Like it's on some type of weird, maybe it's on a ghosty rock? Yeah. Or maybe even um, considered like a vortex. You know, we have these areas like Sedona. Oh, some hot portals. Hot portals, totally. We have places like, like I'm saying, like Sedona or like Machu Picchu or, you know, things like that where people consider these hotbeds where, you know, there's more electromagnetic interference there. A little bit extra charged. Something else is going on there. Hey, hey. When he had built this, he started to hold these annual UFO conventions there at Giant Rock, where thousands of contactees and believers would gather to hear him speak and to also share their stories. And like you said, George Adamski, one of those people to go out there. You know, this sounds like the inspiration for contact in the desert. It's out there in that area. 
And that is exactly what it is there for, for speakers to share their stories, for other people to share their stories. And it's a gathering spot where all of us weirdos can kind of go out there and feel like we're all the same and hear each other out. Definitely. Like I said, I think the more and more we dug into these George characters, the more and more I'm realizing that the huge effect maybe they just only had on our lives. You know what I mean? Absolutely. How I feel the more and more I'm looking into it, you know, we've stood at the exact same locations their feet stood at. You know, we realistically, like you said, this is a big inspiration for Contact in the Desert. And who's to say Contact in the Desert wouldn't be there without those two? Yes, carrying on the legacy for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently there were about 11 thousand people that came out there. That's a huge number. Oh yeah, it was like troves. Yeah, especially during that time. So he continued to hold these UFO conventions. Then he wrote books. He just started to share his insights and information that were given to him by these visitors of Venus up until he was doing this up until the very day before the Integraton was supposed to be completed. But unfortunately, the full magic of the Integraton and the potential of the Integraton was never completed. Days before the final touches, this is in 1978, George Van Tassel suddenly and unexpectedly died of a heart attack. So it was never completed. Well, you want to know who else died of an unexpected heart attack? The day after he had a UFO conference in D.C.? George Dimsky. How interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of speculation about this because I believe there was never an autopsy and that his body was quickly cremated before even his family had a chance to see what was going on. Yep. You know, to me, that just sounds like a huge conspiracy there. And maybe even with George Adamski. One of the most important things that George was sharing with these contacts that he had with aliens from Venus was how outspoken he was about it, especially for that time period. You might have these, you know, one or two people popping up, but it's not as huge as it is now. And also this was the beginning. So this was the beginning of everyone coming out and being like, hey, me too. Oh, oh, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, not hashtag me too. Try that again. Oh my God. (laughs) Hey, me as well. Yeah. Hey, me as well. Me as well. Me also. Uh, Yeah. And then also he was the original to first speak of having contact with Ashtar, you know, which is a known group of beings or being. And it's commonly recognized as Ashtar Command or Ashtar Galactic Command. Ashtar had apparently warned George about the hydrogen bomb and the destruction that it would cause our planet. Because George was so outspoken about that, it really bound him to get attention from the government. So, I mean, you have aliens from Venus coming and warning of hydrogen bombs, and that could be considered a national security threat. They, air quotes, they, like CIA, would obviously want to keep an eye on George. And if there was any truth about his claims of the healing of the Integraton, Like, they wouldn't want him to go out and share that type of information. No, they'd want to shut that down. Yeah, absolutely. They would want to shut that down forever. The least is true that the CIA did investigate George, and you can read declassified documents about him on the CIA website. 
I found it really easily on Black Vault. I think everyone goes to blackvault.com now. So if you guys want to read that, you can. And there was a recent declassified uh, UFO documents that were also about George Van Tassel with George Zadamski. He came up right after I saw George Zadamski was George Van Tassel. They had investigated him. They had scanned copies of his writings and along with a map of Giant Rock and where Integratron is. And, you know, that's not on a map. Like anytime, if you even go there now, well, maybe it pops up in Google. But I know that when we've tried to do that before, we had to go off like a drawing, like a drawing map. Yeah, you yeah, you need to you have to you kind of have to know where you're going and like which turn to take because there's not roads or anything out there. Like you have to have four wheel drive. It's literally yeah. the middle of the desert. They do this on purpose. They don't really want people going out there like they just leave nature alone. Leave nature alone. Exactly. So they have these scanned copies of his writings and a map of how to get to Giant Rock and where the Integraton was located, like how to get to this spot which I found really interesting was in George's file, I came across interesting details of Nikola Tesla. And that popped out to me because the Integraton was supposed to work well with a combination of other things. It was supposed to work with high voltage Tesla coils. So in this George Van Tassel document is information on a woman named Margaret Storm and a book that she was writing that was called Return of the Dove. So in the book, she states that Tesla was a Venusian. Makes sense. That he was brought to Earth 1856 as a baby and left with Mr. and Mrs. Tesla, his supposed parents, in a remote mountain in Yugoslavia. Ooh, Yugoslavia. I don't I don't know you Yugoslavian accent. I just assume some sort of Russian. <laughs> Yugoslavia. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yugoslavia. Well, apparently these Venusians are still in contact with Tesla engineers. So George Van Tassel, contacted by aliens from Venus, tries to build a healing machine with some Tesla technology. And Tesla himself was supposedly from Venus. And then this is where George is killed off, just like Tesla was. Right. Dun, dun, dun. And all his documents stolen. And it's just sad because they're great kind of leading edge technology, which would have greatly impacted humanity in a positive way, was never able to fully manifest. You know, I mean, to this day, lots of people still gather at the Integraton and you can do a tour, you can do a sound bath. And many people do report and claim to feel like, you know, they've been healed or had some sort of cellular rejuvenation there. So there's still a positive effect, but... Who knows the possibilities? Exactly. Who knows how far this could have gone? And so it's just interesting to see the parallels of when people start talking out about these things, especially when it has healing technology or some type of technology that could better the earth and have us rely less on things now that cost, you know, shit tons of money, like, hello, Tesla. I mean, now I have a freaking PG&A bill through the roof. We wouldn't have had that yeah. if these things would have been able to flourish. So it's interesting that they both had these ties to Venus. I mean, I really wouldn't rule it out that Tesla was a Venusian. I mean, it makes sense to me in all honesty. You know, what's funny to me is the parallels between the two Georges, too. It's like they, they both had these very similar experiences. A lot of the things you're talking mm -hmm. about that these, you know, Venusians said to one George also said to the other. They were very maligned on a lot of their their stories and the things that they were talking about. You know, both of them basically saying that Venusians came down and war warned them about like our own technology and war and bombs and stuff. Yeah. 
But, you know, what's interesting is you have these two people and they're two very different versions. You have somebody like George Van Tassel who is celebrated and his legacy is nurtured and, you know, people to this day still really talk about him. And then you have the other George who, although despite being the person who started it all, has this reputation of, you know, not being truthful, even though their stories are incredibly similar. You know, I think it it goes to say, no matter how people, how similar people's stories are, that personal touch to it and who you are as a person, I I think has a big deal on how the UFO community sees you. Yeah. And accepts you. Well, because, you know, you, you look at, you look at, you know, my George Adimsky constantly trying to make money. And then you look at this other George and he is, you know, trying to heal people. And, you know, it's it's these two people with these two incredibly different stories with these two incredibly different paths. You know, the true definition of, you know, two sides of the coin. Absolutely. I mean, how how many times is Van Tassel accredited with being, you know, the, the father of ufology? You know what I mean? When the re- reality of it is, is it's more Adamski than it would have been Van Tassel. Oh, yeah, for sure. Maybe because Adamski kind of exploited himself. That's a, and and that's my whole point of what I mean. Yeah, like it, it's that clear cut of I think what me and you or what most people in ufology have an issue with are those people who were trying to take advantage and 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 run for a money grab. Don't hey hey everyone guess what? Not a lot of money in ufology. Let me warn you now. Unfortunately, there's a crowd. There's a crowded market. Doesn't pay well. Uh, we're doing this out of the kindness of our hearts here, guys. But uh, that's the difference, you know, you see. And I think that's the big reason why I think a lot of people think of Adamski as somebody more of like a salted, not good figure. And you're looking at someone like Van Tassel, who was maybe more in it for the more pure intentions. Yeah. Whether or not their stories are real or true, it's the I think the intentions underneath it all dictate who history remembers and who they forget. Absolutely. And two big things about them and what they talked about, like you said, still carry on today. And I mean, with with George first mentioning Ashtar, Ashtar Command, Ashtar Galactic Command, many people still say that they're they're channeling that information or have contact with Ashtar. But the issue is that the information is so it's so conflicting, like it, it conflicts itself. So I think there's could also just be when there's more than one person and like not everyone's on the same page. That also brings a lot of question to people's stories because it's like, well, who do I believe this dude or this dude? You know, with George's information, I mean, it really trickled down to our current basis of metaphysical teachings. He talked about and brought to light the idea of this universal mind and tapping into the mind to gain information from ET beings and spirits that have passed on and brought on this concept of ascended masters, which is really, again, a big basis of metaphysical and kind of new age way of thinking about things. Both of these Georges way back in the day had shared information, like you said, whether true or not, that has trickled down into our mainstream ufology and spiritual teachings. What they spoke about from the very beginning is still being brought to this day. And to infinity and beyond. (laughs) And to infinity and beyond. So wait, really quick, what do you feel about the Venusian thing? Do you feel like it's changed your mind? 
considering the fact that we had that possible announcement of life potentially being in the atmosphere of Venus and then revisiting these stories and giving them more of a serious look. Do you feel a little bit different about the idea of Venusians and having contact with people of of Venus? Do you take it more seriously or is it still a giant red flag for you? Okay, so I'm going to immediately say it's giant red flag for me still, but I will say anything is possible and that maybe these aliens, it's like a huge inside joke with them and they just say they're from Venus. Like they're like just all of us, let's just say we're from (laughs) Venus. They're little, their little human minds can't understand. Yeah, they're like, they won't even know what planet we're talking about. Just say Venus. Yeah. Hey, we do that, though. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. And what's interesting about it is Venus is the second brightest thing in the sky next to the moon. So there's a possibility that maybe aliens are just saying Venus because they can point to it and say, that's where I'm from, (laughs) instead of just explaining to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Maybe the whole Venus thing is just because we're stupid humans. I mean, but it makes sense when you're trying to have a conversation with someone. So where are you from? I'm not going to, you know, before we wouldn't be like Morgan Hill, California, because that's just a small dot. We would just be like San Jose. Bay Area. Bay Area. Or I would just say Mm -hmm. San Jose, California. Or if that doesn't work, you're just like San Francisco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're like, it's close enough. Yeah, exactly. Just California. Maybe there's a possibility that these aliens are dumbing it down to us and that that's their go-to planet. Again, because like I said, they can point to it in the sky. They don't know how to communicate with us. Like they didn't, we don't speak their language or whatever. They talk to us telepathically and maybe that wouldn't have worked. You know, maybe, maybe what if we weren't a telepathic species? And they could just point to that and be like, oh, right there. That's where I'm from. Maybe that's the airport. There's like an airport up there. You know what? Maybe Venus is the portal that they're coming through. Who fucking knows? But I definitely think I, I'm still going to red flag it a little bit. Hmm. But, I, but I'm more open to the possibilities of it being something else like that. Like maybe we're just, you know, we're being our stupid toddler selves and we can't understand anything. And so they're like, oh, we're from Venus. You want some more cookies? Don't blow yourself up today at lab. I know, right? Well, I feel like I will take stories more into consideration now. I feel like I'm like, hmm, okay, I see a lot of similarities. I really do like your thought process, though, and can also agree with that. And that makes total sense to me. So I'm going to go with both of those. Either it's close enough and they're describing or there could be true. Did you just middle bitch yourself into a situation where middle bitch wasn't even an option? <laughs> Dude. I am who I am. I do what I do. I just want to let you know that Bobby's been going on other podcasts and using the term middle bitch. Oh, he better cite that name drop. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Everyone go listen to Not For Everyone podcast. We love Bobby and Adam. But yeah, he he like he was like, I just did a podcast and I, I used the term middle bitch. Do I need to trademark that? I'm just like, I think we need to trademark it. Bobby's trying to steal our shit. Oh, hell no. Hell no. <laughs> love you, Bobby. Bobby I hope though. You're we hope you're okay. <laughs> Like, no, but really don't die out there. Yeah, please don't. I texted him and usually he texts me back pretty quickly. And I was like, hey, are you alive? And it took him a few hours. And I was like, oh, God. You're all shit. Should we start making arrangements? I did. I was like, (laughs) should I send flowers to his wife? Send some whiskey. Exactly. Pour it on his grave for us. All right, guys. We love you all so much. I just want to say with like all sincerity, uh, I fucking hate Mountain View, California. (laughs) Brie really thought I was going to say some sentimental, the little look in her eyes. It's like, oh, Jamie's getting cute. Nope. Fuck Mountain View. Maybe you're bringing on the negative energy here. Maybe you need to tone it down. <laughs> Maybe you need to take a time out, Jamie. <laughs> Listen, I just want to let you know that I've been really into astrology lately. I've been like really, really digging into it. 
And the more and more um, I dig into it, the more and more I'm starting to reject these ideas of what people, like their astrological signs are. Because the more and more I read into a Libra, I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so. And then the more and more I talk to lots of Libras, I'm like, fuck, we're all a bunch of fucking bitches. You are. We're a bunch of fucking assholes. I'm just kidding. And like, (laughs) no, we really are. Like, no, it's true. And then like, I I started looking up famous people who are Libras and I'm like, why everyone always got these like frou-frou-y pink, like, oh, Libras are so airy and beautiful and wonderful. I'm like, we're all fucking hot messes, horrible, angry, like, what the fuck? So, I don't know. Don't put it in the podcast. I just want to tell you. Oh, no. We're going to leave it in. Uh... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, then I think like how you're a Scorpio and I'm like, you do not have Scorpio characteristics. Like, I just don't. But what I was going to mention to you is one of the really key things when you start looking into astrology is understanding that in more of the Western mainstream view are only looking at it in the filter of your sun sign where, I mean, really, you should be looking at your rising sign, your moon sign, you know, that the trinity of those three are really what makes you you. So like my rising is a Sagittarius. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. No, that makes sense to me. You give me Sagittarius vibes hard. Yeah. Yes. So that's what you should be looking at, you know, and like even when people are reading their horoscopes, stop looking at your sun sign. You should be looking at your rising sign. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure mine is Gemini, which makes a lot of sense. Oh, Lord have I'm mercy. Sure. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Well, I'm a Scorpio moon, too. So I'm Scorpio moon, sun, but then rising is Sagittarius. That's so interesting. Because, yeah, I was like looking at it and I was like, Bree, like people always say like, oh, Scorpios are fucking, they're the devil and they're a bunch of fucking whores. And they're like, and I'm like, Bree is not any of those things. She is such like a light love, like wonderful being. And like, I've never heard anyone describe a Scorpio that way. And I'm like, what the fuck? But I am very mystical, you know, into mysticism and the unknown and diving into that, which is also what Scorpios are really about. And Scorpios are the rising phoenix, you know, bringing themselves back from the ashes, being in transformation. That's me. What's funny to me is when when someone describes to me a Libra, I immediately think like pink, fluffy, frou-frou, love, light. And that's what I think of you. And then when someone thinks of a Scorpio, I think of like the devil in darkness and like that's me and you, but opposite. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm always like, I'm always like, I think Bree's supposed to be the Libra and I'm supposed to be the fucking Scorpio. I think we have it backwards because I think that you're very balancing. Like you're always trying to find that middle harmony ground in life. And I'm not, you know that I'm always like, I'm always like burn down the fucking world. But but this is where that also gets kind of construed or people think of Libra as a balance when it's really that Libra's life path is to find balance. So you might not have balance, but that should be your purpose. That's what your struggle will be. And then what should also be your greatest accomplishment. So now that we've turned this into a little bit of an astrology talk. Astrology 101. I was like, we should we should do an astrology episode one day. We could. Just for shits and giggles. Just for shits and giggles. A little, a little something. All right, guys. We love you all so much. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will be back in a week. So I'm saying it on the record. So we have to do it. Bree. Yes, absolutely. Well, I've invested so much in my new studio. So that's also like, you know, I didn't have any spot to record before. And then since my room flooded and everything in my room is now in my living room, I really had to look at my extra room and be like, okay, we have to get our shit together here. So I've really been putting a lot of effort into it. Why don't you do a little uh, MTV Cribs um, video for our TikTok of a little studio tour? Oh my God. Well, it's not completely done and you know me I have to have everything like what I consider to be perfect Mm -hmm. 
No, because then we, because then, because then you can duet it when you finish it, and then be like, "This is the finished product." Maybe catch you later. All love right, guys. You guys, we love you. Love you, Jamie. Good night. Bye. Love you, Jaime. Love you, Bree. Love you.